It's Wednesday, March 25th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Funds, Bill Barker. Happy Wednesday. Thank you. How many days is it till opening day? Dan, do we do we have news from the uh, Dan's following this closer than than Dan I Boyd has year. tickets to opening day, and we I are th- twelve days away. Twelve, 12 days we're away. only twelve days away. Only twelve days away. Wow, twelve days it's away. The twelve days of spring of, <laughs> of countdown to opening day. I just thought you know, it's a little cloudy, a little rainy outside today, a little cold, and and my thoughts are turning towards spring and opening day. So. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about stock buybacks. We're going to dip into the full mailbag, but we are going to start with the stock that is shooting to the moon today, and that is Kraft Foods. Shares up 40% on the news that Kraft Foods is merging with Heinz. And if you're a Kraft shareholder, first of all, congratulations Ooh. on a fantastic yes. day that you're having. Buy uh, your friend's drinks today. Yeah, yeah the first couple of rounds. You, are, this is like you hit the hole in one. You, you now have to buy. You have to buy a round of drinks for everyone, not just your friends, I'm thinking everyone in the bar. Yes. Shareholders of Kraft will get a 49% stake in the new company. They will also get special cash dividends. Heinz gets 51%, obviously, the controlling stake of the brand new what is now going to be the third largest food and beverage company in North America? You like this deal? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I like it if if Warren Buffett likes it, and Warren Buffett really a big seems to like it. Chunk of it, and I think the market likes it. So, I mean, I, as somebody who doesn't own directly um, any of the shares that we're talking about here, or uh, in the funds that I help manage. Um, I don't have a stake in this directly, but uh, I, I think it's a good, good. It's obviously a good thing for shareholders today, uh, and it is going to play into what I think is emerging as a little bit of a good cop, bad cop uh, kind of playbook for Buffett and 3G. Um, 3G being known for sort of a tough but fair approach to their acquisitions and cost cutting, and and, and it was 3G and Buffett. Who engineered the Heinz deal? Yes, and I don't think that you know Buffett, when he acquires companies, tends to keep them uh, very much intact and and not immediately. Uh, obviously, he's he's looking for companies that are well run and where the management is going to keep doing uh, what it's been doing for the most part. Um, he's not acquiring all of this company. Obviously, 3G uh, is is the partner, and and they will be the ones I think looking at. How do we cut what they're talking about? Is I think one and a half billion dollars a year out of out of uh, costs for the the combination here. So uh, Buffett continues to be uh, the the good guy, you know, providing the money. This is a lot of money that is going to be provided from uh, Berkshire's coffers to the shareholders of of Kraft. The sixteen fifty a share that they're getting is being funded. By Berkshire and and 3G comes in and and plays, if not the heavy, you know the tough but fair um, role of of finding all of this uh, money that is going to rain down uh, onto the new owners. And we've seen this play out before over the last couple of years. Food producers, either through acquisition or merger, General Mills and Annie's, Hormel and Skippy. Kellogg and Pringles. And you have to assume, and this is something you just alluded to, you have to assume that when you look at all of the brands that Kraft has under its massive umbrella, 
some of those are going to be sold off. There's going to be some streamlining. We've certainly seen that play out as well. Well, I think you're looking at a lot of brands that are uh, classic in the good and bad sense. They are well known to us from our childhood uh, in a lot of cases. And that's not necessarily the direction of the growth of, of the food industry, which is more aligned with uh, healthier and, and organic products than, say, Oreos. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's. Wait, do they, they don't own Oreos, no, they do they? That's Oreos, Mon- but, it, but that's uh, Mondelez, having been oh, right. spun off from um, Kraft a, a few years back. But You're uh, saying Jello and Jet Puff marshmallows, not necessarily the healthiest thing in the world. Not necessarily, although everybody loves them. So, so that you've got the classic names that uh, kids love and and uh, are are still around many, many, many decades uh, after they were already popular. But they're not necessarily the high growth thing. So the the money uh, in this deal, uh, the cash generation that the companies are looking for, it is. Uh, more from a cost savings uh, side than uh, a growth of these brand side uh, is my understanding. I'm looking at this deal. I'm thinking about Buffett, and this doesn't quite fit the bill of the proverbial elephant gun that Buffett talks about. And I'm sure we're going to hear more of that phrase in the subsequent weeks as we lead up to Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting. And I'm sure that's going to be a question. Off the top of my head, I don't know how much cash on the balance sheet Berkshire Hathaway has. But while this is not the, you know, Buffett going out and buying Burlington Northern or, you know, or making one of these big tens of billions of dollars acquisitions, it is only a half step removed from it. Um, and, and in a way, it is sort of the classic Buffett move. Yeah, I mean, not tens of billions, but just ten billion. Right. I guess so. I mean, that's the amount that is being uh, provided, I think, by by Berkshire to make the the dividend payment. Do you think that the next big acquisition Buffett makes is going to be more like this type of deal, where he's working with 3G, because the the early reviews on the Heinz acquisition were glowing for how it worked out, and people said, and people at this company in this studio said at the time, this could be a blueprint. For Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway for the future, and certainly that's played out with this deal. But I don't know. There's something about Buffett that makes me think that as good a deal as this is, and as well as this had worked out, and I hadn't really thought of the good cop bad cop thing the way you described it, but it makes perfect sense. Buffett also strikes me as a guy who takes pride in the fact that he has made on his own big acquisitions, and I'm just wondering if as good as this deal might be for Berkshire Hathaway, if it makes him even a little just just a little bit itchier to go out and make a big splashy acquisition on his own. I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't know the man well enough to answer that question. Uh, I wish I did. Uh, you know, <laughs> hang out with him enough to be able to tell you what's on his mind. And I, I think you know things. Is that what you along. picked up from my little monologue there? That, that I'm, that I'm out supposed with to re- read his mind and tell you what he's thinking. Uh, which I can't do. Uh, it, it, there's so much cash that Berkshire generates that there's. Enough there for a massive acquisition. Still, there's enough there to fund the massive uh, mega cat uh, mega catastrophe 
you know, payments that will come along at some point, uh, as Berkshire being uh, a mega cat insurer. And, the, you know, there's enough to go out in, into the market and keep buying shares of, of things, some of which have not worked out as well recently as, as historically for, for Berkshire. And it is his preferred uh, method of capital allocation to go out and acquire entire companies, whether Berkshire is doing 100% of the acquisition or in, in partnership now with 3G. Uh, he prefers that over acquiring stock, but you know they've got so much money. Sometimes they've just got to take advantage of what's in the market. And a couple of the recent uh, major stock plays, Chevron and, and Tesco, have not worked out. As I say, as sterling uh, as his track record uh, in total is, but I don't think that's going to change his use of, of the equity markets. Let's move on to stock buybacks, which are very much in the news today. AutoZone announced they're adding $750 million to their current stock buyback plan. And Merck, the big drug maker, increasing its stock buyback plan by up to $10 billion. So, obviously, that's much bigger than AutoZone. But you were saying right before we started taping, if you're an AutoZone shareholder, you got to like this move. Yeah, the returns to AutoZone, and it, it's not as well known a great story as it, it probably deserves to be. Uh, but if you look at their uh, share buy, buybacks over the last 10 years, they had uh, 80 million shares out there uh, 10 years ago. Uh, they've reduced that to uh, 33 million. So they've, they've bought back more than half of, of the shares uh, out there, and that has helped fuel. The earnings per share growth uh, from seven and you know seven dollars and a quarter to to thirty five dollars a year now, so you know they've they've increased their earnings per share almost fivefold over those ten years, and part of that is reducing the share count by more than half, uh, and and it's all part of the math of you know what you can do in terms of intelligent capital allocation. AutoZone is not a stock that trades at Extremely lofty multiples, so its its price has been a fair one to acquire the shares at over those last ten years, even while it's been returning uh, very good results. Uh, so it, it's not just that it's the stock that's been languishing. The stock has been going up along with the earnings per share over those last ten years. Company spins off, you know, has enough cash from its operations. It doesn't just throw all that money at opening new stores. Has you know a little dividend. Buys back some shares, fair number of shares. It's it's all part of a recipe of doing a little bit of everything well. Is there a primary way that investors should think about stock buybacks regarding the individual companies that they own? If you like, you own shares of company X. You hear they're buying back shares. I mean, when I hear a company is buying back shares, and it's almost never a company that I own. Um, but when I hear, uh, and I don't own shares of either of these two, but when I hear that, the very first question I think of is, is that the best use of your money? And if it is, great. And it's, and obviously, to your point about AutoZone, and if you have a, if you've demonstrated that you're good at this over time, then that's even better. But that's immediately where my mind goes as an investor: is that the best use of that money? I think that the best use of the money. Uh, go back to Buffett. He said that the best investment that you can find is something that generates enormous amounts of cash and can reinvest all that cash. 
that's that's a, you know if you're Coke back in the day, spinning off huge amounts of money and able to uh, just grow the business at a, at a above normal rate, that's fantastic. But if your growth opportunities are not there or not intelligent to pursue, say you're getting you know twenty percent return on your investments, uh, you you can't grow. Most companies can't grow at twenty percent a year. Take all that money and and just keep throwing all that money. Uh, at at that level of growth, they can buy back their shares and pursue a more achievable level of growth, which might be on the top line, much closer to ten percent or or even you know six eight percent. You can have a very good uh, long term story by growing the top line at six percent if you're buying back your shares, uh, and and that is so. What I'm looking for is a company that regularly does this and has a history of doing it well, rather than a company that announces. A bad quarter or a series of bad quarters, and to attempt to mollify the market, says, "Oh, and now we've just authorized a share buyback plan because our stock is cheap." Yeah, because and they're trying to say our stock is cheap, and and AutoZone is is more saying that's just part of our capital allocation plan. It's been that way for twenty years. It's nothing new. Yeah, it does strike me that in a sense, it, a stock buyback plan falls. In some ways, into the same category as a dividend payout, that you would almost always rather see a steady delivery over time. Whether it's oh, we're we're going to pay this dividend, whether it's yearly or quarterly, we're going to pay this, and we're going to steadily increase it over time. Um, we we've got a demonstrated history of buying back shares, as opposed to. Seemingly out of the blue, someone, you know, whether it follows a few bad quarters or not, if it's just out of the blue, then you're probably going to want to ask some more questions if you're a shareholder. But if it's, oh, this is what this company does every year or every couple of years, then you're yeah. more likely to trust them. I think the companies that follow a bad quarter or a bad series of quarters with a, you know, sort of a veiled look, our stock must be cheap because now we're buying back our shares. Is something that may work for a day in the market, but a lot of the announcements that the, there's an authorization to buy back shares doesn't really translate into um, actually doing it, because maybe the operations are in enough trouble that they need to hold on to that money rather than buy back shares. Buy back share buying back shares that just keeps up with the shares that are being uh, issued by the company is in the form of options to employees. You're not as excited about that's just. You know, a different way of paying the employees is is issuing a bunch of options, particularly if they're, you know, all of the execs, and then buying them back in the open market. Uh, that's not as exciting as a company that is really out there to reduce its share count intelligently. You know, over the long term. Radio at full dot com is our email address uh, from Ed Seely, listener number forty seven and a half in Chicago. One question that popped up recently while discussing stocks with my teenage son was the purpose of corporate annual meetings. While I fully understand their purpose, I'm wondering what a non-professional investor should glean from annual reports and proxy statements. I usually read the proxy statement and look for unusual proposals before the board, but is there something else I should be looking for? And let's be honest, I really don't have time to pour through the annual report of all companies in my portfolio and make critical decisions on how they are performing. That's what you guys are for, right? Uh, it's a great question. And before I turn it over to you, I'll just mention my father-in-law's move, which is anytime he gets the annual report from any company that he owns shares of, the first thing he does is he looks at 
the people who are on the board of directors and who are up for um, a, a renewal vote. And uh, I think the number for him is four. If he sees that they sit on more than four boards of public companies, or any company for that matter, whether it's public or private, I think four is his threshold. If he sees they're sitting on five or more boards of directors, he automatically votes no because he thinks, you know what, if you're, you're, you can't possibly focus on and be as good in your role as a director. That's his move. That's his move. I, That's I, his I don't move. have that particular move. We do vote uh, our proxies uh, in the mutual fund uh, space. And you know, I think for the average investor, what should they be looking for? Average investor is ignoring their proxies, right? I mean, the average individual investor is not even bothering to vote. Um, And I'm not going to try to talk everybody into reading every one of the proxies to vote their shares because it's some sort of democratic thing. Um, You know, the institutions out there, you're leaving the institutions in charge of of the. The voting on these by abdicating that, but th- that's that's going to be the case. You know, your hundred shares are hundred shares out of the big pot, and most people look at that as, as not worth their time to try to figure out everything that's on the proxy statement, which is usually uh, permission to pay the dividend, to um, rehire the accountants, and you know, to pay management what management has decided they want to be paid. Uh, so those are those are the typical proxy things. Uh, occasionally, there are things that are submitted by shareholders, activist uh, shareholders, and they're looking for the company to change their policies on uh, anything from political contributions to you know using uh, animals as, as test subjects, and and anything that is on somebody's wish list. Um, it is possible to get those things onto the proxy statement. So that might be of more interest than the the run of the mill. You know, here are the directors that are up for renewal, uh, and and here's how much the management wants to be paid. Uh, but now I wouldn't uh, dismiss the annual reports, which have a lot of information. Uh, if you've got a substantial amount invested in an individual stock, uh, you know, reading through the annual report is not something that is um, something you should uh, look. If you don't want to go through the work and you want to take somebody's advice, whether it's a Motley Fool newsletter or a broker or whatever, uh, just be sure that you uh, trust who, who your source is. Um, otherwise, you, you know you can vote these things and look at the uh, look at the individual reports yourself if if that's how you want to manage your money. I think the annual reports, particularly uh, if there is a letter from the CEO, I think those can be instructive. I also think it's it's instructive to see, uh, you know, I think it was Peter Lynch who famously had, you know, made the comment about annual reports that what he really wants to see in a company's annual report is as little money spent on the production of that document as possible. So some companies are, you know, if you get it in the mail, it's all these glossy photos and they're trying to tell this story about how they're helping the world. Become a better place and that sort of thing. And what he just wants is no. I just just give me the information because if I'm a shareholder in your company, that means I care about how you're spending money. And if you're spending money on some glossy, you know, multicolored document, I, I'd I'd rather you spend that money in other ways. Yeah, I think I think there's something to be said for that. I I wouldn't take it too far. There are a lot of great companies that produce good-looking annual reports, uh, but you know. 
go back to Buffett and Berkshire, they produce something with no glossy cover. It's just the cheapest paper that is available, yeah. I think, and you know a couple of staples, probably one more staple than they even want to use. Uh, and if you, and by the way, I think I've mentioned this before. If you haven't been to the Berkshire Hathaway website, it is worth going to because it is like taking a trip back in time because they. I think it is the website that they designed in maybe 1996 or 1997. It is the most bare bones website. So they're treating their website the way that they treat their annual reports, the printed reports. Yeah, they're they're not uh, they're not wasting any money there. They're they're a very tightly run uh, operation at the highest level uh, in terms of what they spend. But to go to the website uh, to see how old and antiquated it looks, and also. Uh, you can get all of Buffett's letters uh, linked right there, very prominently on the, the front page, uh, BerkshireHathaway.com. So they're always worth reading. Have you ever been to an annual meeting, either as an individual investor or in your role at Motley Fool Funds? Uh, yeah, they're they're not especially worth going to. Uh, I mean, Berkshire's got a big production, but no, normally it's it's a very sparsely attended thing uh, where they just sort of announce the the results of the votes, uh, which people have. Emailed in typically, but you have the opportunity to vote your shares at the meeting and have them counted uh, at the meeting if if you so choose. And I've I've was at one last summer and it was very tidy, but uh, not many people there. But I, I got a chance to speak to management, so that was worth my time. Yeah, for anyone who's ever seen the great movie Wall Street, there's the classic scene where Michael Douglas's character Gordon Gecko goes to the annual meeting of Teldar Paper. And makes the famous "greed is good" speech, and it's the, it's not just a great speech; it's a great scene, and and there's a lot of drama behind it. But to your point, most annual meetings are kind of the exact opposite of that. Was that an annual meeting? I think it was an annual. Or was meeting. that a special meeting? Because he was he was because you. So most of the meetings are annual meetings, but there are some meetings which are to approve or or vote down a you know a a merger. So that that goes off the annual schedule, and I. I it's been a while since I saw Wall Street. Now I know what research I'm going to do yeah. when we're done taping here. I'll figure it out and, uh, and tweet it out on the market foolery. Bill Barker from Motley Fool Funds. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. This show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.